like a like a general giving out assignments to his subordinates, the Apostle Paul, after ground had been gained in gospel work and battles won, caused his trusted leaders to take responsibility in different areas. To Timothy, he sent him to the metropolitan city of Ephesus, which was in Asia. That's a good fit because Timothy himself had come from Asia Minor, or actually another section of Asia. And as a reliable partner, he would carry on the gospel work in that big city. But Paul said to his other captain, Titus, I want you to stay in Crete. And as it says in the verse you see on the screen, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. I want you to straighten out what is unfinished, to set right the matters that need attention, to take care of unfinished business. And that's a collection of a couple different verses, versions and paraphrases. So Paul was going to put structure to the new church, or Titus was, in Crete, and also to teach some very important matters. Now Crete is a beautiful place, as you can see from this picture. I'm sure this is a promotional picture for a cruise ship, uh, but it shows what a gorgeous place it is with the mountains and the inlets of water. But in that day, it was not necessarily the most beautiful place. Titus was led to Christ by Paul, as we see from Titus chapter 1, verse 4. He's my true son, meaning a genuine convert, number one. And number two, he is my official representative on this island. And so people need to know that he has authority. He and I share a common faith. Very interesting word that is mentioned. Uh, usually common means profane. It's, it's just common. But here it means something mutually shared. It's good for the Jew as well, the Jew Paul, as well as the Greek Titus. And maybe Crete is a good fit for Titus because he is Greek and now he's on that largest of islands in the Mediterranean Sea. Paul had sailed with Titus on many journeys, and they knew each other well. Titus had served at the, in the big city of Corinth, and he, so much so that his name is mentioned nine times in the letter we call 2 Corinthians. He rose to prominence in that ministry there, and he's always mentioned with appreciation and with affection. But Crete? I mean, this is a tough place to work. Notice what Paul says in Titus chapter 1. This is a quotation from an ancient prophet, Epimenides. He said, even one of your own prophets had said, the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> this saying is true. That just cracks me up. That's not what you would call politically correct. 
In fact, you'll find often in the scriptures statements that don't quite seem to meet our sensibilities or the sensibilities of today. The Greeks even coined a verb, kredizo, from the word cretin, which meant to cheat and to lie. Epimenides said the absence of wild animals on the island of Crete was well supplied by its human inhabitants. They didn't need a zoo. They had people. (laughs) And Titus, you get to work there. Add to this, they were lazy. No desire to work hard. So they're liars and cheats. Their behavior is like a brute beast. And they're lazy. That's the terrible trifecta. Now, not all Cretans were like this. In fact, at the day of Pentecost, there were representatives there and probably, obviously, leaders who were going to be placed in the church and people who had come to faith were not like this. But this was a, apparently, there were enough people on the island of Crete to make this generalization rather true, to typecast them in the drama of life. It's kind of like ugly American. Have you ever heard that phrase? Uh, that's the pejorative term that is used to stereotype the typical American who travels abroad, who is said to be loud, arrogant, demeaning, demanding, ignorant in behavior, insensitive to the culture around them. And I would have to say this saying is true. Apparently, there's enough Americans who travel abroad with this type of behavior to make such a saying somewhat true, a generalization. So what was Titus to do? I don't know if he acted like this, but I think I would have said, I thought you were my friend. I thought I served well. I love the big city. You send Titus to Ephesus and you send me to an island of Looney Tunes. I've got to deal with these. There's no way that this is going to work. This is suicide for my ministerial career. Putting me on an island like this. In the words of Longfellow Deeds, it's hard to soar with the eagles when you're surrounded by turkeys. And I'm sure Titus wondered about this situation. Maybe he said, let's do the James and John thing. Let's just call fire down from heaven and cleanse the island and start all over. But Paul said, no, I want you to take care of unfinished business. Didn't say it's going to be easy, but it's going to be fruitful. In fact, I want you, this is chapter 2 and verse 10, to so minister to people that their conduct will change. And then instead of proverbial, proverbially saying they're like evil brutes, now their lives will adorn the gospel or make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. That is to make it appealing, to almost make it eye-catching. So it will draw the attention of the world. It's like Matthew said in chapter 5, live in such a way with good works 
so that when people see your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Make the gospel attractive by your life. And here's your job, Titus. When you lead people to Christ, make sure they know that the way they live is going to determine, humanly speaking, the success of the gospel on this island. If you go to chapter 2, verse 9, in every way make the teaching of God our Savior attractive, he gives the reason for it. He says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. It's a very interesting word. It's the Greek word epiphany, to appear. And he's talking about the first coming of Jesus, the first epiphany, when he came when in, with grace. For the grace of God has appeared. This, this is referring to something that, that has been um, perhaps hidden, but now made known. In classical Greek, epiphany meant the sunrise coming out of darkness into light. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The gospel is for everyone. No matter who they are. Because everyone is made in the image of God and valuable to him. How valuable? Jesus died on the cross for them. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and the gospel teaches us, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Stop living like you used to live, and to live in a self-controlled and upright way, godly lives in this present age. And it's interesting that the word self-control is used multiple times. Here he's talking about self-control being the right response of believing the gospel message. He tells the elders in chapter 1, they must be self-controlled. He tells the old men in chapter 2 that they must be self-controlled. He tells the mature women in chapter 2, notice I said mature, not old, to be self-controlled. And in verse 6, he says, young men, you be self-controlled. What the gospel does is it changes us. From the inside out. And the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is self-control. So now forget the way they used to live. God's grace is going to come in and change you. And you're, li you're to live this way, verse 13, while you wait for the blessed hope which is the glorious appearing, the second appearing of Jesus Christ, the second epiphany, the appearing in glory. And get this, it is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of debate as to whether he's talking about the great God, the Father, and his son, Jesus Christ. But the best understanding of it, because the Father never is described as coming in second advent, it's always Christ. It's best to understand it. This is the appearing in glory of our great God, who is Jesus Christ. 
And you are to live a godly life in between the advents, the first and second advent. Because Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people of his own who were zealous for good works. What Pastor Doug read a moment ago from the book of Ephesians chapter 2 was given to Timothy as he went to pastor that place. And almost the same words are given to Titus as he seeks to set in order what is in disarray or not yet completed in the church on the island of Crete. Good works, good works, good works. May they see your good works and be attracted to your life. Make the doctrine of God look good by the way you live. And that will draw people like a magnet to your Savior. So verse 15, chapter 2, these then are the things that you should teach. When it gets into chapter 3, this is rather interesting because he says, now I want you to remind these people who have come to faith in Christ, remind believers to be subject to authority, verse 1 subject to rulers and authorities. Why? This is good. This is right. And it adorns the gospel of God. And be ready to do whatever is good. Obedient. Ready to do whatever is good. Why? Because good works adorn the gospel of God. In verse 2, don't slander anyone be peaceable or mild, considerate, humble, and always gentle. Always gentle to everyone. It amazes me how Christians read portions of Scripture like this and love to fight. Not so with our Savior, a bruised reed he did not break, and smoking flax he did not quench, because his mission was to make the gospel attractive. So ethical behavior, good works, godly living draws people to the Savior. And yes, people can change. Even the Cretans can change by the grace of God. God delights in delivering desperate people. So lest we get on our high horse, which we are wont to do, Paul says, by the way, verse 3, do you remember how you used to be? Oh, we're so good at attacking others and their lack of godliness. But Paul says, remember at one time you were foolish and disobedient. You were deceived. You didn't understand the truth. And you were enslaved. By what? Sin. Whoever commits sin is a servant to sin. You were enslaved by all kinds of passions. All kinds of pleasures. Get this, you lived in hatred or malice. You were hated 
and you hated everybody else. You say, boy, that wasn't like me. I wasn't that bad. That sounds a lot like the Pharisee who prays in the temple with the tax collector, God, I thank you that I'm not like this dude. Remember the first time you heard your voice on a recording? An old tape recorder? And you played it back and you said to your friend, I don't sound like that. And your friend said, you sound exactly like that. No, I don't. You see, our perception of ourselves is often very different than the perception of those around us. And I want you to know for sure, your perception of yourself spiritually is far different than God's perception of you. Because this is what God sees. Our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion and the passions that control us and the fact that we are on the broad road that leads to destruction but the grace of God appeared and God's grace can change anyone so don't forget what you used to be like we're living in a day and age where sin is being ramped up in public And what is evil is being called good. And we're so upset that we just begin to lash out at everyone. And we begin to hate people in authority and put them down. And You know, there's a difference between talking about positions and talking about people. But we don't make the distinction very clearly. We just kind of hate everybody. That's a real godly thing to do. We're living on the island of Crete. And God put us here for a reason. And his grace can change people, but they'll never be desirous of turning to his grace unless they see grace in us, right? So remember what you used to be like? At one time, verse three, we listened to Doug Cooper's testimony, wasn't that powerful? And the great ministry of Crossroads and Marlene Tebbin's faithfulness and so many others. And we say, yeah, that, that guy was really, yeah, boy, he needed grace. So do you. At one time, verse three, but when, verse four, and now we have a third appearing. We've already had two appearings. Here's the third time the word epiphany is used. And the appearing means he saved us. The first appearing was for everyone in grace. The second appearing appearing is yet future. So one is past for us, the coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is yet future. We're living in between the advents. But here's an appearing that takes place in the middle. It says, verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. From what? From verse 3. He saved us. It's so important he mentions it twice, verse 4 and 5. He saved us. And by the way, Not because of the righteous things that we have done. He's been talking about good works to the point where people would begin to think that good works will save. And he says, no, no. It's because of his mercy he saved us. It's through the washing of rebirth and the renewal 
which is done by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured, on out, poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So his motive, get this, is kindness. God sends his son, and he's going to kill him with kindness. He's going to preach the gospel in such a way as a meek and humble individual. He stands up boldly before false teachers, but to the victims of the devil who are held captive by him at his will, he shares the great grace of God. The motive is loving kindness. By the way, verse 4 is one long sentence in the original, and it's semi-creedal. It seems to be like an ancient creed, and that's because of verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. It's one of the several trustworthy sayings that Paul puts into his letters as though he's quoting from an ancient well-known creed. And this is one of the best descriptions of salvation you will find. It's glorious. The motive is love. The Greek authors in that day often put together love and kindness, loving kindness. Their gods were nothing like that, but our God is filled with loving kindness. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. We need to be like God and be gentle and kind. That's what the text says. What is loving kindness? One time a teacher asked her class to define loving kindness. A little boy raised his hand and said, if I were hungry and someone gave me bread, that would be kindness. If they put jelly on it, that would be loving kindness. <laughs> Can we be lovingly kind to those around us? Not to that wicked reprobate. Remember what you used to be like? Yeah, it's only by grace you are what you are. That's the motive, his loving kindness. The basis is mercy, not merit. He saved us, not because of the righteous things which we have done. We just described in verse 3 that we didn't have righteous things that we were doing. He saves us by mercy and mercy alone. And the means is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is washing us, probably symbolic of baptism. Baptism doesn't wash us of our sin, but it is a, a visible reminder that God came in and washed us by his grace and washed us with the blood of Christ so that all of our sin is gone. It's symbolic of the washing within. It's a, it's a rebirth, which was a term used by a lot of cults in that day. But of course, we know, describes the salvation experience, being born again. It's the rebirth. It's the renewal work of the Holy Spirit. It's regeneration. It's new life imparted to us by faith because of the love and grace of God when we embrace Christ as our Savior and confess our sin and we are reborn. And verse 6, 
God pours out the Holy Spirit on us, a term taken from Joel's prophecy, chapter 2, of Pentecost, Acts 2. The Holy Spirit is poured out on us abundantly and generously so that the goal, we are heirs of eternal life. If you go back to chapter 1, it says, the God who cannot lie has promised from the very beginning the hope of eternal life. And now he delivers through the death of his son eternal life. So Paul says in verse 15, I want you to teach these things. That's chapter 2, verse 15. And in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I want you to stress these things because they are important. It's important for those who are saved to live a godly life. And it's important for our witness for them to see our good works. And so, kudos to Titus. He did it. Eusebius tells us in about 325 AD that tradition taught that Titus ministered on the island of Crete, left a while and came back and was the first bishop on the island and died there in his ripe old age, having stuck by the stuff and continued to minister because the people on Crete, as bad as they were thought to be, were people who needed to be saved. Speaking about people who maybe are as bad as they possibly could be, remember Charles Colson? This is a picture of Colson when he was an aide in the Nixon administration. And he is one of the ones who was prosecuted for the whole Watergate fiasco. Uh, Charles Colson was the hatchet man for the Nixon administration. Uh, he famously said that he would uh, step over his own grandmother to get the policies done of the administration. It's a hard-nosed guy. And then Watergate, Watergate broke. <clears throat> And in prison, he got saved. Yeah, sure he did. <laughs> That's what everyone does when they get in trouble, right? Foxhole conversion. And people mocked him. In his book, Born Again, he says that my mother was irate. Your father and I raised you to be a good Christian. We baptized you and confirmed you into such and such a Protestant church. We taught you every Christian principle. Imagine you're saying you just became a Christian. And she was ticked. The Boston Globe wrote an editorial entitled Amen, Brother, and listed every one of his faults and sins, imagined or real, and then at the end of that article said, if Mr. Colson can repent of his sins, well, there just has to be hope for all the rest of us. Tongue in cheek. This guy's really bad. But he truly was saved. <clears throat> Eric Severide, remember that name? Well-known CBS News anchorman. December 17th, 
His newscast that night was centered around two things, a snowstorm that had hit Washington, D.C., and the conversion of Chuck Colson. He said the act of God, the snowstorm, did more to save energy and cleanse the air in Washington than all the laws of Congress that they were trying to pass. As for the conversion, the other act of God, Mr. Colson, Colson once thought the toughest of the White House guys and a man to believe, believed by many to be standing in the need of prayer, as well as a good defense attorney, Colson made page one with his conversion to religion. The new Colson, Severide said, does not claim the capacity to walk on water, but he has given up walking on grandmothers. A good many people here are anxious to believe in something, anything, and they're quite willing to take Colson's change of heart as real. After all, that kind of change is what innumerable critics have been demanding all along. Mr. Colson is clearly on the right track in more ways than one. An act of Congress has its place, but it's a simple act of God that gets results. <laughs> Can't say that today, I guess. Oh, and it got results. Mr. Colson became the leader of prison fellowship, one of the greatest defenders of the faith, a great intellect in conservative think tanks, a strong member of a Baptist church in, in Florida, Fort Myers, I think it was, now in heaven. You know, it's kind of like... Well, if God can save that person, he can save anyone else. That's what Paul said of himself. I'm the chief of sinners, and God saved me just to show it. If he can do it here, he can do it with you. And that's the message that Titus learned on the island of Crete. God delights in delivering desperate people. Like Colson? Like Doug Coopery? No. Well, yes, but people like you and like me. And amen for that. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will speak to hearts today, those who don't know Christ, that they might cry out and say, Lord, you came in grace and your son died on a cross to save me. And someday you're coming again in glory, and that will be more of a time of judgment for those who have rejected the Savior, as well as a time of vindication for those believers. But at some point, your grace can appear to me. Maybe today, now, when I say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Lord, we know that any heart who prays that prayer with sincerity will never be rejected, for Jesus guarantees, I will not cast you away if you come to me. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Lord, I pray this morning, maybe someone here in the worship center, someone listening online, say, Lord, save me from all my wickedness and my past. 
I deserve condemnation, but you are offering me salvation in your son, and I accept it, I believe. For believers, this message is pretty clear. Let's clean up our lives. Let's get rid of the worldly passions and live a godly life. A life that speaks of the goodness of God and the holiness of God and the kindness of God and the grace of God so that when others see us, they'll want what we have and they'll, they'll turn to the one that we love. Lord, only you can speak to a heart. So this morning I pray that some will trust you and some will turn to you as Lord, Savior and Lord, that believers would make sure that they're, we're following you and that the grace of God that brings salvation that appears to all people may be the message of this church forevermore. Let's continue to pray while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed that God will speak to each one of us.